I'm Tim Gombas, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about things that interest me. Books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me if you like at faithimprovised at gmail.com. In this episode, I recommend a great new book on the dynamics of celebrity and ministry, and I talk about the big story of the Bible. So I'm standing here in a very new place for this podcast, for this high-quality podcast. I'm not in my basement, not in the kitchen. I'm in a room that I have built into my study after spending the last uh, week and a half or so constructing bookshelves, bookcases, and uh, organizing this place. Almost done. I just need to get an office chair. Uh, Pretty happy with how it's turned out, and it's going to be the perfect spot from which I can record this podcast. Uh, So this thing is back up and running. I know this has been a long layoff. A couple weeks ago, traveled. Had so much going on in August and the first half of September and did not have have the bandwidth, as they say, to put together a podcast. Was able to travel to St. Andrews, Scotland with my son, Riley, who uh, is settling in there. And already having an absolute blast. It's fun to hear good things from them. It was fun to also visit that place after, I guess, I think I was there for several days in 2016. We all lived there uh, for four years back in 2000 to 2004 uh, when I did my PhD. And um, it's just the most beautiful spot in the universe. I was able to walk uh, some of the holes of a couple of the golf courses there and uh, get some great pictures and also just have a blast with Riley. And he spent four years of his early life there and only has spotty memories, mostly of the inside of our house and um, the preschool. But it was really cool to sort of walk through the town, go through a variety of uh, beautiful spots and sort of talk through what those, what kind of memories that we had there. And now he's got a year to make memories of his own. So I'm super pleased for him. He's studying classics, doing a master's in ancient history, ancient literature, that sort of thing. So jealous of that punk, but he's going to love it. The new semester has begun for me, a new semester of teaching. I'm teaching a course at Calvin Seminary called New Testament Narratives. And uh, we're a couple weeks in and I'm, I'm having a total blast. I've been out of the classroom for a year. And in so many ways, I didn't really miss it. In fact, I I can't say that I missed it. Um, I haven't missed it at all. Um, I get plenty of engagement socially. My social cup is filled up uh, enough in my life. And um, sort of being intellectually challenged and engaged has kind of taken care of itself through this podcast over the last year, which I've really just loved doing. And um, But it's also fun to be in the classroom. Uh, I don't. I don't naturally enjoy that kind of a setting. I don't. I. Uh, I don't know. I have a particular sort of social anxiety that keeps me from wanting to spend too much time around people in general. I would just put it that way. So the prospect of walking into a classroom uh, with people that I don't know and having the focus of attention on me is always a stressor, and I don't like it. Um, but what's fun is being able to shape uh, 
a corporate learning of an environment like that. And I just look forward to learning myself. So uh, we had a blast this morning looking at some passages in the Gospels and talking about historical criticism and literary criticism, and then practicing some of those techniques. That has all been a blast and it's, it's really fun. And uh, the students there are really engaged and it's a real blast. It's a little bit awkward learning new, um, new media. Um, it's a hybrid class, so there's people that are zooming in remotely and I mean, all that stuff. I mean, modern education is just pretty wild, but it's fun. And now that the, the fall feels a bit more normal, um, my hope is that podcast episodes will go out uh, more routinely. We'll see what happens. Uh, I don't apologize to anybody for... I know I've got a couple of notes saying they're looking forward to another episode dropping over the last couple of weeks. And um, here you go. This is why I'm glad I said from the beginning, I'm doing this for me and for my purposes. And if other people enjoy it, that's great. Uh, I just didn't want to let other people's expectations um, determine my schedule. I'd like to do that as little as possible, um, although I don't want to be too inconsistent. That's one of my... Um, it's easy for me to sort of get into bad patterns with regard to consistency. And, um, actually the routine of doing this helps to have, helps me to have some structure in my life, which I need, I need structures or else I'll just go limp, completely limp. I don't spin chaotically out of control, uh, flailing around wildly with activity. I just go flat and, um, lie around on a couch, uh, watching movies or whatever I want. So anyway, today's been a productive day and doing this is part of that productivity. I do want to report on a, um, yeah, it's not too unfair to say that it was a religious experience. It was certainly transcendent. Um, I had two of the best breakfast burritos I've ever had in my life this last week. Um, there are particular foods in which I find supreme pleasure. And one of those is a well-made breakfast burrito, basically a well-made breakfast period, like a well-made cooked breakfast is one of my particular pleasures. When I was in uh, Scotland with Riley, I, um, I had th yeah, three mornings. I had the full Scottish cooked breakfast, actually, each morning that I was there. I had the full Scottish cooked breakfast at Mitchell's right there on Market Street. Just as when Steve and I were in England, I had an English cooked breakfast, uh, the full English cooked breakfast every morning there. There's just something about those breakfasts, along with an Irish cooked breakfast. Um, they're all very similar, but they all have their own particularities. And my goodness, they're just so delightful. Well, I also delight in in fact, maybe even more so in a well-made breakfast burrito. There's nothing that will ever touch the breakfast burrito at Great White in Venice, California, right there on the beach. Um, nothing touches that. That's just, that's the greatest food stuff I've ever enjoyed bodily. It's incredible. Um, they do not use just potatoes in their breakfast burrito, but tater tots. What an inspired choice. That's incredible. Well, I discovered, um, well, I should say around town here, there are a number of place, uh, places that are well-known for their breakfasts. And their breakfast burritos are so average. 
Uh, and I'm talking about, and I'll just say it, call people out. I'm talking about Wolfgang's. Uh, I'm talking about Anna's house. And there's one other place that closed recently, um, Mana. And it's like, come on. They make other, other dishes are well-prepared, tasty, and enjoyable. Their breakfast burrito, it's like they just mail it in. You don't mail in a breakfast burrito. Anyway, I discovered um, just this last week on Wealthy uh, over there in Easttown, um, there's a place called Basalt, kind of an odd name. Uh, but somebody who just fell in love with Tex-Mex cooking opened this place up a couple years ago, apparently. And uh, so I thought, I've got to go try their breakfast burrito because it sounded like from the literature that they produce on, you know, when, when places tell their story, it's like, all right, well, this person, you know, th- these people may be serious about food. We'll see. Ordered up a breakfast burrito the other day. Couldn't believe it. Easily the best in Grand Rapids. It was an absolute pleasure and uh, loved it so much. Um, I had to stop in again and enjoy yet another on Saturday morning. So um, I'll be back. I thought of it earlier today, like before I had lunch and was thinking, man, I think I'm going to go down there and grab another one. But um, made myself a large, tasty salad instead. Anyway, that was a transcendent experience. Life-changing in so many ways. Um, I can't say whether or not I inadvertently asked that burrito into my heart um, or whether it's taken you know, a, a seat on the throne of my life, but uh, definitely enjoyable. Uh, okay, I got, I've gotten a couple of emails um, over the last several weeks about things that I've said with regard to the Bible and um, interpretive method and that sort of thing. So I thought I would address those. And I've got some other things that I want to be saying down the road, uh, but I'll leave things for other episodes. Got this. Um, I can't remember who it was from because I just copied and pasted it into this document. Um, but it has to do with how reading the Bible uh, changes. If you have in mind that uh, the New Testament texts, in addition to all of the Old Testament texts, that these were all written and produced with corporate audiences in mind rather than individuals. This person wrote, I'm truly captivated by the idea that the Bible was meant to be read to a corporate audience and not just to an individual. My question is, how does that change its meaning or interpretation? Do you have an example to illustrate this? Uh, yeah, a lot of thoughts about that. I think that's really, really critical. Um, and I'm so glad to hear that you're captivated by that idea because I think it is truly captivating. It's something that we ought to be thinking about a lot and reminding ourselves when we're reading biblical texts. In fact, the best way to, to um, engage with biblical texts is to have to be part of a group and have somebody read it and read it with knowledge um, of how the text moves and feels and how it should uh, be inflected and, and, and even performed. But... Um, Or maybe read a biblical text out loud and just imagine yourself sitting among a group and listening to it. So yes, this this does change its meaning and interpretation. And uh, I'll try to think of several examples of this if I can. As I said, I just did have a massive salad. And so I'm sure that all the blood is going to my stomach rather than my brain at the moment. Um, But anyway, here goes. Uh, First of all, the, the people 
the audience being addressed is just that. It's an audience, and it's an audience of um, church churches. Um, there are church audiences being addressed by New Testament texts and by biblical texts. In fact, um, the Old Testament, we can imagine uh, the audiences there are groups of Israelites thinking about how they can be the people of God. And the New Testament texts are being addressed, addressed to audiences that are thinking through what does it mean to be the people of God in this place, in this time, as this particular group of people, as we um, participate in community life together. And uh, that's important because when, when we all together think about what it means, what hearing these words mean for our corporate discipleship, um, that's a very different set of questions than what does God want from me? How do I live the Christian life? The, the, the question is, how do we as the people of God embody these things or hear these things or be encouraged by these things as we together participate in lives of discipleship and, and, and in a community of discipleship? Um, how do we sort of receive this confrontation um, or this comfort or this encouragement or whatever? Um, what does this mean for us? So we are always asking together um, how we might be obedient to the one true God in Christ. That's a different um, conception of things than me or I. So that requires that hearing from biblical texts um, should be met with discussion. And um, yeah, I think I was, I was talking to Mike Erie recently, and he was telling me about um, how things go at his church, that this is what they do, that, that you know, sort of quote-unquote preaching or time thinking through scripture together uh, includes engagement and discussion, which is awesome. And just think about also um, all of this happens not at all. And I don't know. I don't know what my my audience is made up of here beyond the seventeen people that I know about. Um, but I often have to remind people, or often to just do remind people that are in some of my classes um, and in churches I speak to around the area. We're not talking about white middle class people. Um, American white people, where um, that's largely the shaping uh, social reality in which scripture is heard very often. Things are very different, I realize, in a black church context, a uh, historic black church in America, where preaching and um, scripture presentation is often um, interactive. We're, we're talking about uh, Mediterranean cultures that scripture was produced for. So, I mean, in, in Jewish history, there's a massive um, tradition of argument with Scripture, arguing with uh, in, in community and engaging vigorously. Uh, so there would be a lot of that going on. And biblical writers or uh, New Testament textual writers wrote with that in mind, wanting to kind of stir up their audiences and wanting to sort of generate discussion. So one of the things I think we ought to think about is that this doesn't have to do with necessarily meaning or interpretation, but with reception, reception of scripture um, organically would have been met with discussion or even argument or debate. Um, and when uh, New Testament texts were presented by an authorized reader, the reading of the text included expansion and discussion and 
maybe instruction, well, definitely instructions from, you know, Paul or Peter or James or John about, you know, if questions are asked, say this, or here's what I mean by that. And make sure that when you read this part, you call out so-and-so um, and don't let them, you know, say this to you or whatever. Um, I mean, you get instances of this uh, in second or third John, there, there's one of these instances and in Philippians four. So um, yeah, these would have been vigorous encounters. So that that's one way that this is affected. Um, another way uh, that is to say that the, the people together asking the question, what does this mean for us is we and us, it's not just me. And um, the event of scripture discussion would be just that it would be discussion. It wouldn't just be, I read this quietly in the morning. I have my quote unquote quiet time, um, my devotions or something like that. This would have been public and uh, vigorous and verbal and interactional. Um, I think there are a number of texts that are written to sort of almost generate unrest in community. I'm thinking of the passage in Mark 7 when um, when Mark writes about Jesus's encounter with a Syrophoenician woman. And um, the way that the text is presented, Jesus, uh, the Syrophoenician woman, uh, appeals to Jesus to cast a demon out of her daughter. And Jesus puts her off and says to her, it's not right to give to the dogs under the table what belongs to the children. And I think at that point, when Mark presents that, he is aiming, certainly with Jewish audiences, but even among non-Jewish audiences who know some of the culture or who are very aware of the cultural codes of the day, I think Mark is wanting to generate um, a sense of like cheering Jesus on as he insults this mixed race, non-Jewish woman. Um, certainly the disciples probably felt that way originally, but I think that's supposed to generate some unrest. Um, and not in the form of, uh, goodness, how could Jesus say this to this poor woman, but in the form of, good, yeah, tell her Jesus. And then, of course, she returns a word to Jesus, and Jesus then gives her this huge commendation. And I think that Mark knows how that is going to affect his audience, that people are going to be looking at each other like, yeah, that's right, yeah, let her have it. Because Mark is sort of eliciting and fanning the flames of their cultural prejudice before then completely subverting their prejudice. So, um, boy, let's see. Also, all in New Testament letters, almost all of the U's are corporate. So these texts are just meant to be presented to groups of people. That's just the most organic way of engaging them. That's the, those are the addressees. So, um, I think that I would say at a broad level, that's how this is all supposed to be presented. Um, that's just the point. And to do to engage these texts sort of on their own, or, or I should say on our own alone, is a very unnatural way of engaging these texts that are meant to be read publicly. So um, yeah, I hope that helps. I hope that helps to make some things make sense. And I think that, um, you know, when I engage text, a lot of us do just read our Bibles on our own. Um, but I think that the questions that we can bring and the, the ways that we envision our discipleship uh, can be thoroughly shaped by that corporate frame. I can think in terms of this is 
you know, what does this mean for me as I participate in the life of Grace Episcopal Church? That's what I want to know. I don't want to think in terms of like, well, I'm, I'm a Christian in general out there. That's kind of my identity. My Christian existence is embodied in the life of a community that I'm organically attached to. That's where I'm Christian in the life um, of that set of relationships. And that's where that's where I make my response to biblical texts. Anyway, I think that's all I got. Hope that's helpful. This was, uh, this is from uh, someone named Jessica. She said, what, what happened to all those people in the Old Testament who were under the law or before the law was given when they died? Did, did they go to heaven or somewhere else? And um, she writes, uh, she and her husband were leading a discussion and they answered that maybe that's the wrong kind of question. Went into talking about how the Jews saw the Torah as a gift. That's, um, and pointed to the, Deuteron the Deuteronomy passage that God says is not too difficult for them. But I think that's the right response. Um, the people who were given the gift of Torah, what happened to them when they died? Uh, this is kind of an interesting um, thing to consider, but quote unquote, going somewhere after you die is kind of a more, a far more recent phenomenon and not one that's really addressed so much in the Old Testament. In fact, I, I can't think that it, there's a whole lot of evidence for much of that. And I'm not sure that there's a whole lot of talk about this, even in the New Testament. Uh, in, in a modern Christian context, but this I think is just because we're so affected by Platonism and not the Bible, we think so much about, quote unquote, where we go when we die. That's, that's like a big question for many of us. I think in the biblical imagination, when people die, they go, they go into the grave. And then um, there's just this awaiting for the great day of resurrection uh, where there will be this final judgment. And Paul has a little bit more to say about this in 2 Corinthians where he talks about how um, those who are those who die in Christ sort of go to some place of waiting to be re-embodied because the ultimate hope in scripture is for the new creation to come about on earth so that um, people participate in the full, in the renovation of creation, the making of creation new. So there's not really this heavenly hope. Um, in the New Testament um, imagination, when people, quote unquote, go to heaven or, or die in Christ and go to some disembodied place, that is a place of some kind of anxiety, actually. Not the not full-fledged anxiety, like we're going to be racked with worry, but there's something seriously unnatural about being a disembodied entity. Um, and Paul talks about how there will be this kind of desire to be reclothed with a body from heaven, not a, a heavenly body made for heaven. Humans were not made for heaven in scripture. Humans are made for existence on earth. But there's going to be this kind of um, God-created, uh, God-restored human existence that scripture looks forward to. That's the ultimate hope. Um, but keep in mind that people who, you know, under, under Torah... Um, those who were sort of under Torah were people who were quote unquote saved already in a sense. They were already people brought to God. 
And so um, the righteous dead were just sort of, actually, there's not, a, there's not a lot in there about what happens. The idea of resurrection is one that comes much later in Israel's history, even. So it's kind of interesting. I think people were just most concerned to be giving a good, given a good burial. And that was it. So I know it's kind of unusual. Um, oh, she goes on to say, uh, we were then asked, what's the point and value of Jesus to them? Man, that's a huge question. That's really big. Very, very significant indeed. And this may be yet another sort of instance where um, thinking corporately really affects like uh, theology, not necessarily um, meaning and interpretation of discrete texts, actually. And now that I'm even saying that, uh, it does affect the meaning and interpretation of certain texts. Uh, and I would especially point to, doggone it, the passage in Hebrews that I cannot think of right now, uh, where the writer says, where he's talking about how without the shedding of sin, or sorry, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And um, just this whole, the whole notion of forgiveness of sins is actually a corporate notion and not merely an individual one. Um, so what is the value of Jesus for um, Israelites or why did Jesus even need to come if Torah was sufficient and all of that? This is, I think, one area of um, thinking about being Christian that is, and, and, and sort of how to put the Bible together that is so massively misunderstood among so many people. And I definitely recognize that I was taught inadequately on this um, because of my tradition of individualism and evangelicalism and of like personal salvation and Jesus as a personal savior and all that kind of stuff. Um, coming out of the Old Testament, the problem that Jesus came to solve was not that um, that uh, people couldn't have their sins forgiven. That was not a problem. People could have their sins forgiven. Individuals could have their sins forgiven. It was right there laid out in, um, in Torah um, in the sacrificial system. They could bring sacrifices to the temple and um, they could have their sins forgiven. The New Testament affirms this in uh, the opening of Luke, where we meet a couple of people who are righteous. They're, they are righteous people um, to whom Mary brings Jesus, uh, Simeon and Anna. So, I mean, Jesus has not yet died, and here are people who are righteous. So what's the deal with that? Well, it's because that was not the problem that Jesus came to address. The problem coming out of the Old Testament um, was that God did not have a, a corporate people. There were people who had their sins forgiven. There were people who are righteous. There were people who were uh, worshipers of the one true God the one true God who was the God of Israel, um, that was not a problem. The problem was um, God all along, or I should say since he um, kind of began anew with calling Israel, the problem is that Israel has been sent into exile. God doesn't, and God wanted, um, what he had designed uh, with Israel was that he would have a corporate group of people that would be kind of the mission agents as a nation for reclaiming the nations of the world for the one true God, pointing to God and bringing the one true God to uh, the rest of humanity. That was what this was all about. Um, they were to model for the nations how to be worshipers of the one true God in their economic practices and their social practices, uh, in their 
um, international relations, in their care for the earth and agrarian practices, in their holistic mode of life, they were to bear witness to the corporate life of the one true God. Um, the creator God, the transcendent God, is an unseen reality and really unknowable apart from how he is seen in the life of a nation. And um, that watching that all unfold in biblical Israel was how the nations of the world were to sort of know the one true God. And then the nations of the world would then be able to go back and think, hot diggity dog, we're Egypt here. How do we as Egypt in our corporate practices, um, in our traditions, um, in our social practices, in our care for the earth, our agrarian practices, how do we manifest the life of the one true God? Because we're not called to be Israelites. We're not called to necessarily um, practice that sacrificial system. We're non-Israelites. But as Egyptians, what does that look like? What does the knowledge of the one true God look like? Because the knowledge of God is always embodied in corporate practices. Um, so that was Israel's mission. And along with that, individuals could have their sins forgiven if they um, they were supposed to go through this whole um, series of practices. Um, I want to reframe my language there. They were invited and were allowed to go through this whole series of practices, um, which were uh, you know, ritual practices and ceremonial, uh, in order to sort of maintain their relationship of immediacy with the one true creator God. Over time, of course, Israel proved itself um, disobedient to that mission and sweeping over a whole range of history, God sends Israel into exile um, as punishment for unfaithfulness because they would not care for the poor, the orphan, and the widow, because they did not care for the earth. They did not give the land its rest, its you know Sabbath rest and Jubilee rest. They wore out the earth, kind of like good capitalists. This is what Americans do. We savage the topsoil and ruin the earth uh, for profit. But anyway, what does God think about that? We know what he thinks about that uh, when we read the Bible. Anyway, um, because Israel behaved that way, God sent them into exile and, quote unquote, divorced them. So now God's problem is that God does not have a corporate people. There are still individual Israelites who are righteous. Think of the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah. These are prophets who address God's people in exile. God makes promises to his people. They're still his people in a sense, and there could still be righteous ones among them, but they're not, they're not his people in that they're not acting necessarily as agents in the way that God, as a singular corporate agent, in the way that God wanted them to be. And that whole reality becomes a future promissory reality as God makes promises about all that in the prophets. That is what Jesus comes to reclaim, to reclaim for God a corporate people. It is not the case that, you know, Old Testament Israel was under the heavy burden of the law and couldn't fulfill it and, you know, was sort of stuck and mired in legalistic practices for centuries and destined for damnation until Jesus showed up. And now all of a sudden people can have their sins forgiven. That is not the way this works. That is uh, kind of a post-reformational um, way of thinking about the Old Testament and a way of thinking about Jesus. And of course, it is all saturated in individualism. And in Isaiah, God promises 
that um, in the future, he's going to restore his people and he is going to bring about forgiveness of sins. And what that means is that he's going to reclaim his people. He said he's sending them into exile because he can't use them. Their sins are between him and them as a corporate nation. So the forgiveness of sins is the reunion of God with a corporate people and God's reclamation of having a corporate agent embody the life of God on earth. And of course, that's um, what the New Testament church is all about. It's not the collection of saved individuals. It's the singular corporate body that manifests manifests the life of God. The life of God is not seen in individual practices. I mean, there aren't really many. In, I mean, what, what can you do as an individual? I mean, you could share and be kind. Well, those are all corporate. Um, you can sort of manifest the life of God or enjoy thinking about the life of God, I guess, in private. Um, but the way that modern spirituality is all oriented is just so private and interior and internal. Whereas the life of God, as the New Testament talks about it, and um, Kevin Rowe brilliantly talks about this in World Upside Down, uh, which goes through Acts, the knowledge of God is embodied in a set of corporate practices, practiced by people in corporate settings of loving and sharing and offering hospitality and including outsiders and overturning uh, corrupt social practices that we found in, in our surrounding cultures. Um, and so when John the Baptist comes proclaiming, um, you know, prepare for the way of the Lord and come out to the desert and have your sins forgiven, what he's doing is calling out this kind of um, prepared group that are um, waiting for the arrival of the king. And forgiveness of sins in that context means becoming the corporate group of people that are waiting for God to sort of claim them and then use them as this corporate agent once again. Because um, even Jesus goes out there to be baptized. He's not, um, if you think sort of biblical theologically, as far as what the New Testament says about Jesus, he's not somebody who needs his sins forgiven. He's joining the special group, the group of agents, the group that is specially related to God. So um, that's what Jesus comes to do. And of course, uh, the reason he dies uh, has everything to do with the creation of that group. Jesus's death creates the one true people of God. Um, that's why Paul says that when you eat the meal, you proclaim the Lord's death because the meal is the, the gathered group of people that have solidarity um, no matter what gender, ethnic, socioeconomic lines are crossed. When they eat together and they have genuine solidarity and, and um, embody being siblings that belong to one another and belong to the one new family of God, Jesus's death is proclaimed because that's what Jesus died to create. He did not die to, to bring about my sins being forgiven, your sins being forgiven, getting the negative amount or, or account, you know, eliminated in heaven and getting a positive account of righteousness created in heaven. None of that is what's happening in the New Testament. Um, the creation of the one true people of God is what the death of Christ is all about. Um, and that's all the death of Christ is also a cosmic reality. Uh, so when Jesus dies in the gospels, there's this darkness over the whole earth, over the land, because sort of this creation is being judged in the death of Christ, this present evil age. And that's why the veil is torn at the end of Mark and Matthew, 
uh, and the veil in the temple had the um, the constellation embroidered on it, depicting the cosmos, this whole creation. And when it is torn, it's like this whole creation is ripped apart and destroyed, and the new creation is brought about. So that's what Jesus's death did. Um, as Paul and the New Testament writers look back on the Old Testament era, this present age that is now judged and going out of existence, uh, but it would, when it was the only thing cosmically up and running, they realized individuals can be forgiven for their sins. That's not an issue. But what what is problematic is that this cosmic era is enslaved by hostile cosmic actors. That's a big problem, big problem number one. And secondly, God does not have a corporate agent that he's working with. And uh, so that is what makes Jesus necessary as the story of the Bible progresses. Um, in a sense, there was nothing deficient about Torah. Um, Torah was given to an already delivered people who, and, and it was meant to point to the way that they could enjoy God's liberative love. The problem is that cosmically, cosmos, uh, the cosmic problem of hostile cosmic actors like sin and death and flesh and the powers and authorities, that was a far bigger problem. That was a, just a too massive of a problem for Torah to ever deal with. And um, the other problem was that when Israel, disobedient Israel, went into exile, there was no corporate people. And this is what uh, Jesus um, comes to deal with. So back to the other question about um, how do things change when you hear Scripture corporately and not individualistically, that also affects thinking about Jesus. What is What was he meant to do? Deal with other problems rather than just simply making me righteous, securing my forgiveness of sins. And I realize that takes a, a massive, massive imaginative reorientation to kind of get your head around how that changes everything. Um, yeah, I, I get it. I get it. I feel like I'm on a long arc of repentance in my own thinking, having decades of my life being shaped in an individualistic setting. Um, but seeing the bigger picture and kind of panning out uh, to, to the whole larger story makes the bigger story um, a story not about me and God and me and Jesus, but about um, the creator God, about the cosmos, and about a whole lot more. Anyway, hope that makes sense, Jessica. Let me know if it doesn't. I want to tell you about a book. It's written by Caitlin Beatty, and it's called Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Prophets Are Hurting the Church. It's published by Brazos Press. This book has just been released, and I'm so grateful that Beatty's written it. She addresses a massive problem at the heart of evangelical Christianity, and that is that it's built entirely around celebrity. Evangelicalism is a sort of amorphous form of Christianity that's actually difficult to define. Scholars have been trying for decades to do so. It isn't held together by a theology or a set of well-defined liturgical practices, but rather by a set of consumer choices. Evangelicalism is basically a marketing demographic. George Marsden, one of the pioneering scholars of evangelicalism, joked that an evangelical is basically anybody who likes Billy Graham. And that points to the problem. The entire culture is oriented by big personalities who are liked, 
or who register strongly in popularity, figures that have mastered the art of marketing. And this is not a recent phenomenon. Beattie gives a historical sketch of how this dynamic was present from the beginning. Dwight Moody, for whom the historic Moody Church and Moody Bible Institute was, were named, made connections with businessmen and became something of an international superstar, thanks to his mastery of mass media in the late 19th century. In the early 20th century, Billy Sunday capitalized on his fame as a baseball player to become a celebrity evangelist. Abidi notes how Billy Graham imitating his celebrity forebears in building a powerful marketing machine that would earn him celebrity status. These evangelists all appealed to mass audiences by preaching an individualistic gospel that bypassed the centrality of the local church. And they used strategies borrowed from marketing campaigns and the offer of an easily consumable product with little cost. This is just to say that the current shape of evangelical Christianity as a marketing demographic built around celebrity personalities is nothing new. This is what it always was, going back even as far as Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and the revivals of the 18th century. Beattie defines celebrity as social power without proximity. She borrows from the brilliant work of Daniel Borston, who described the transition in the 20th century from fame to the phenomenon of celebrity. Rather than someone being well-known for their accomplishments, people were now well-known for their well-knownness. No one really knows why a certain person is famous. They just are. When Daniel Borston wrote his penetrating book, The Image, in the early 1960s, he could point to Zsa Zsa Gabor. Today, of course, we think of Kim Kardashian. Beattie's definition of celebrity as social power without proximity captures the dynamics of this phenomenon so well. What she means is that, thanks to the power of media, we can imagine that we really know someone because we see so much of their lives. We see pictures of them and hear their speeches, interviews, and podcasts. We read their books and consume anecdotes about their lives, and we feel that we really know them, but we don't know them at all. What we know is a manufactured persona, a fabrication of a person that is highly polished and packaged for consumption. And of course, so many of us are devastated when we find out that the fabricated persona doesn't match the reality. Just think of Bill Cosby, presented himself as America's dad, only to be revealed as a serial sexual predator. It turns out that very few people really knew the actual Bill Cosby. In this celebrity dynamic, again, social power without proximity, is especially tragic and destructive when it comes to ministry contexts. While we may think that we know a preacher, writer, or thinker because we hear their sermons, read their books, and follow them on various forms of social media, we really don't. Beattie lists just a few of the recent scandals that have rocked the evangelical world, including Ravi Zacharias, Bill Hybels, and Mark Driscoll. In each of these cases, celebrity figures created massive followings and gathered to themselves social power. They were created personas, images of themselves that weren't real and their voices carried considerable authority for so many. But they also managed to create buffers around themselves to keep their real lives secret. They had the social power, but very little proximity. Very few people were close to them, so that they weren't really known by anyone except those they abused. And when, vict when victims spoke up, they weren't believed because the fabricated persona was so powerful. And huge organizations and many involved in them depended on supporting that fabrication. To face the truth and push behind the fabrication was too costly. 
The celebrity dynamic in ministry is so destructive and dangerous. People in ministry are put on pedestals and surrounded by sycophants who won't hold them accountable. This allows celebrity ministers to actually believe the hype about themselves and come to think of their fabricated personas as real. That is profound self-deception. And it sets up followers of celebrity figures for a massive downfall. When they discover that the persona isn't real, they very often walk away from the faith entirely. The lure to pursue celebrity status is so powerful, even on young people headed into ministry. Future ministers admire celebrity figures and long to have the same influence they imagine their heroes do. I remember well talking to a college student who was headed for ministry. When I asked her what she imagined doing down the road, she told me she wanted to be a conference speaker. I shouldn't have been shocked. After all, seminaries often market themselves using graduates who have become ministry celebrities. And these are the models for being successful in ministry. Who wants to be a simple pastor who faithfully serves a small congregation for decades when you could go big for God? This is a really important book. And I would suggest that anyone in ministry or thinking about ministry ought to read it and consider it deeply. The dynamics and temptations of celebrity are at work in so many insidious ways, even in local church settings. The realities, or maybe the unrealities, of social media have made available to us all sorts of ways of constructing personas rather than seeing to it that we are known and loved for who we truly are. I wrote about this quite a bit, quite a bit in my book, Power and Weakness. This book, however, is called Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Prophets Are Hurting the Church. It's written by Caitlin Beatty and published by Brazos Press. You can order it with free shipping from bakerbookhouse.com and support an independent bookstore and local business. Or you can get it from another independent bookstore. So I want to talk about the big story of the Bible. And I'm going to take a couple of episodes to do this because um, there's so much to explore, obviously, in the Bible. But uh, it's necessary, it seems to me, to, in talking about biblical interpretation, to sort of set out the big story of what this is all about. So I'll, I'll take a couple of episodes to do that. Um, but the reason why it's necessary to talk about why, how this sort of whole thing holds us together as a story and as a drama is because whenever you're engaging with sort of discrete biblical texts, like say um, Philippians 2 or whatever, or Romans 5 or I don't know, John 9, to just throw out random texts. Whenever you're dealing with a discrete biblical text, which is really all you can do at any one time, you should be always asking, what is this about? What's the point of this? Or what, you know, what's, the, what's this about? And there's this sort of constant um, relating of the discrete biblical text that I'm reading with this larger story of how it all fits together, okay? And unfortunately, um, the larger story of how we imagine discrete texts address is kind of, as, as I've already mentioned, we think that these texts are talking about my relationship to God, me and Jesus. That's what the, these texts are all about. Um, but that's not the case. And of course, our imaginations are shaped by um, generations of individualism and our our thoughts about being Christian are shaped by the the music that we hear and the lyrics that 
um, attend the music that we sing in church settings. I'm being very careful to not use the word worship to talk about any of that reality. Um, because worship in the Bible is about um, concrete lives that manifest the one true God, holistic lives of being disciples, of being um, of, of doing justice. That's what worship is about. It's not about singing. It's not about singing crap that 21 year olds in Nashville produce. <laughs> sorry. So that, sorry. It's the afternoon and uh, I'm feeling cynical. I'm sure that the interns that work in Nashville and crank out the music that many good folks enjoy on Sunday mornings. I'm, I'm imagine they're fine folks. Anyway, see, I, I'm so affected by my my evangelical heritage of niceness. I, I cynicism sort of strikes me as really bad. Still, got to do something about that. Anyway, so talking about the big story of the Bible is necessary because when we look at discrete biblical texts, we should always be asking, "What's this about? What's this? What's this relate to?" And it relates to this overarching story of God and His work in the world, and that's a and that's painted on a big canvas. That's that's a a macro story. It's a big story. It's not uh, sort of focused on me and Jesus or just my heart. And it's also necessary because how we understand the big story of the Bible, um, even if we think in terms of this larger overarching story, often we have deficient. Uh, concepts of what this whole story is about. Like, um, we might think about what the story is all about, or when we when we think about the question, what the story is all about, we might think in terms of sin and salvation. There's a problem in the story, and salvation is the answer. And the problem is sin, of course. And uh, so many of us are affected by, or at least so many evangelical people are affected by hearing our whole lives. What this whole thing is about is that all of us are sinners and Jesus died for our sins, and we need to ask him into our hearts and be saved. As if the story has two movements, sin, salvation. That is seriously deficient. Uh, or we might imagine that humanity was made for relationship with God. And there's a brief, there's, there's like, you know, some sort of breaking of the relationship, and God has come to restore relationship. So that we are sort of connected to God. Um, there's another story, and uh, Tom Wright writes about this in um, Simply Jesus, I think. I saw, where did I put that on my shelf? I think it's Simply Jesus. No, no. in his book, in uh, How God Became King, he talks about how it is that um, one of the problems with a creedal shaped Christian theology, that is, theology according to the creeds, is that they completely skip over Israel, and they skip over like the life of Jesus. Um, they become, those elements become completely unimportant for the story. And I think he's got a great point. Um, this has certainly changed the way that I say the creed or think about the creed in church, uh, the, the, the Nicene Creed. And in uh, several of the liturgies, uh, thankfully, well, actually, there's a pretty bad confusion of uh, the people of God in um, some of the Episcopal liturgies. But anyway, won't get into that. Certainly, it's the case that when we think about the big storyline, we can move from, like, say, creation, fall, 
Jesus without ever factoring in, you know, Genesis 4 to the end of the Old Testament. It's like all that stuff is irrelevant to thinking about what it means to be Christian. That's problematic. If you can have a theological vision or if you can have a, a, a conception of the entire story of the Bible and leave out, you know, um, 70% of it or 80% of it, and the Old Testament is a massive percentage of the Bible. Is it just completely unimportant? The answer is no, it's not. So anyway, I want to talk about the big Bible storyline. And uh, I just want to mention that I have a handout that I've put together that um, I'm very willing to share. If you send me an email, I'll I'll uh, send you a copy of this, a copy of it. I had intended to, uh, to, to um, create a page on my blog that I could put resources for uh, my podcast on. And I just, I, I just haven't done it. There's no reason. There's no reason at all. It's just that, you know, there might be a game on or I want to watch a movie or sit around. I've just been lazy. I've not done this. And Jake, my son, even like totally went in and created this beautiful template uh, for overhauling my blog. This is like 11 months ago he did this. I'm sorry, Jake. I've let him down. I haven't come through. But anyway, uh, so this is nowhere online, but I'm very happy to send you this handout so you could follow along with the next episode or two that um, go through this whole thing. Um, so you can follow along. But one of the first items that I have on here, and I'll repeat this for um, when you have this in front of you. Um, so much of the story is actually about Abraham. From Genesis 12 to the end of the Bible, I mean, one of the main human actors is Abraham. You might think that it's like Jesus, but it's kind of not. And I have this sort of visually laid out uh, with in sort of a chiastic structure, which is kind of funny because I always downplay massively the importance of chiasms in the Bible. But anyway, it's laid out like this. But if I were to overview the biblical story, in a sense, the story that... The, the story of the Bible is the story of God establishing his, ro- his rule over creation through humanity for his glory. That is what the story of the Bible is all about. The story of God establishing his rule over creation through humanity for his glory. But then there's like a subplot to that because humans rebel. And after that, much of the Bible, but not the whole thing, becomes the story of God's restoration of the nations through Abraham. Like the story gets off track at some point. The story's going super well up until the beginning of Genesis 3. But those first two chapters of the Bible are some of the most unexplored territory in all the Bible, certainly in all of like modern Christianity, modern American Christianity, modern Western Christianity has actually neglected the first two chapters of the Bible. Um, When they're not being absolutely mangled and tortured and slaughtered and slashed up by um, uh, you know, people like Ken Ham and creationist folks, which um, maybe down the road we could talk about that. Massive, massive, tragic misreading of Genesis 1 and 2. Um, anyway, things go actually off the rails with Israel. I think the Old Testament is uh, not super positive. When they go off the rails with Israel, the story of God's calling of Israel, or I should say, the story, 
then becomes the story of God's calling of Israel to be a special possession and the national agent of God's reclaiming of the nations so that God's glory might fill all of creation. So that's God's intention with Israel. When that goes off the rails, it becomes the story of Jesus. And the story of Jesus, um, in many ways, kind of wraps up and recapitulates previous failed narratives. So, with the failed narrative of Israel, Jesus is the true Israelite. He's faithful to God, and he's the agent of Israel's redemption and the, and the blessing of the nation, so that God's glory might fill all creation. So, Jesus is the restorer, not of Israelites, but of Israel. He's the true Israelite. Um, that's, that's a massive theme that Matthew hits with all of his fulfillment language. Jesus doesn't really fulfill sort of promises in the way that we would imagine. Um, when Matthew talks about Jesus fulfilling Old Testament texts, very few of which are actually prophetic, he sort of has Jesus marching through pivotal moments of Israel's failed story and redeeming that story as the true Israelite. Um, Jesus is also the true seed of Abraham, the one person in whom all the nations are blessed. And then, of course, Jesus is the true human with regard to the failed human story, ruling over creation for the glory of God and calling people to himself who will be co-rulers of his in the end. Um, but I have this laid out visually. And again, if you want this handout, just write me. I'll be happy to share it. It kind of shows how it is that this kind of the biblical storyline hangs together with Jesus sort of at the center. Um, but he's he's not sort of saving people in, a, in the way that many of us have imagined our, us modern individualists. He's kind of, he's sort of saving the narratives. He's reclaiming these failed narratives and getting the whole project um, back on track. So what I aim to do in the next uh, several episodes, this might take a while, is... Um, is to talk through how these various episodes work in thinking about how to approach the Bible and in thinking about biblical interpretation. If we're not aware of what the big story is, then we don't know what any of the parts are about. And again, the big story is not me and God, me and Jesus. Um, it's the story of God establishing his rule over creation through humanity for his glory. Anyway, one of the reasons I hesitated to do an episode last week is I was just wiped. I was, I've been exhausted. I was really tired that day last Monday. And um, also was thinking, man, this is what happens when I get intellectually sort of blotto and just kind of blank. I just think I don't have anything to say. Um, then I start talking and a lot of things come out. So this this got long, but um, I'll split the content of this next sort of topic. I'm going to do a couple of episodes make it a lot easier to digest. I'm looking outside my new study window and it is the most gorgeous early fall afternoon and I'm about to get out there and enjoy it. It's a beautiful day. Don't let it get away. Mm -hmm.